You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation. This season, we are igniting the imagination of leaders through purposeful, life-giving conversations about the five muscles the body of Christ must strengthen to be fit, agile, and ready for God's now. For more information about the five muscles, visit tmf-fdn.org and click Leadership Ministry. Welcome back to Igniting Imagination. I'm Lisa Greenwood, and joining me for our episode today is Scott Sharp and Blair Thompson-White. Welcome back, you two. Hello. Hi, Lisa. We continue to exercise the five adaptive muscles, the body of Christ, must strengthen to be fit, agile, and ready for God's now. Today, we are strengthening the distributing power muscle with Mike Mather. Before we introduce Mike, let's flex this muscle a bit. And um, perhaps the best place to start is with the question, what do we mean when we say distributing power? Blair, Scott, what are your initial thoughts on that? Reflecting on Mike's conversation, he is so quick to point out that there are gifts in every person. (laughs) It's a very foundational idea that we get from scripture, that uh, the Holy Spirit has given each person a gift. And then our responsibility is to go and discover those gifts and to find them and to invite people to use them to bless the community. So when I think of distributive power, I am thinking immediately of scripture and how power is not just held with one person or a group of people, but that everybody has the power of the spirit. And that really, if we truly want thy kingdom come (laughs) as we profess to want and to desire, then we're going to have to invite everybody to use the power God has given them for that end. Yeah. And if you think about that, it really is a mindset shift from a scarcity mindset that says there's just a little bit to go around to an abundance mindset, which of course is all throughout scripture and a sufficiency mindset, like there's enough, right? And so when we're thinking about distributing power, we're trusting that there's enough, enough giftedness, enough power to share, right? Scott, where does this take you? In a similar vein, you know, it takes me back to scripture as well, because Mike is such a great storyteller and just really encourage the listeners to enjoy this podcast because he tells these great stories and they're all about how people have gifts and skills and power and just getting to know them is so freeing. And I mean, that's kind of what Jesus did in his own ministry of telling stories that engaged people to allow them to express who they were, for him to express who he was, and for them to wrestle with, somehow wrestle with what this all means to be in community together. So one of the things we've talked about as we have worked with leaders and congregations is is simply paying attention to where the power is located right? Sometimes we just keep doing things the way we've been doing them. But I really noticed Mike doing that, just paying attention to the giftedness in individuals, but also paying attention to where the power was located in the congregation and in the community and kind of in in subtle and beautiful ways and sometimes not so subtle, relocating some of that power. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. I mean, I I love it. I think this is a one of our colleagues certainly has pointed to this often, of how you do worship 
shows where the power is mm. in the congregation. <laughs> so, you know, is there a shared power up front in leadership? Are there multiple gifts being shared among the congregation? Uh, so I, I think it is. Once you have the eyes to see the power dynamic, you start seeing it everywhere. And yeah. if you can shift your perspective to look at gifts instead of needs or deficit, you know, like we talk about abundance instead of scarcity, if you can shift that vision wow, it just opens up the world in a whole new way. And it feels like right now, more than any time I can remember, we're so hungry to have a vibrant community. And truly, I believe the only way to have a vibrant community is to get everybody using their gifts towards a common purpose. Yes. So it just, this feels like a really important conversation right now. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait for y'all to hear it. So my Mather is the pastor of First United Methodist Church in Boulder, Colorado. And for many years, Mike was the pastor at Broadway United Methodist Church in Indianapolis. Before that, he served as pastor of another church named Broadway in South Bend, Indiana. He is also on the faculty of the Asset-Based Community Development Institute at DePaul University. Mike is the author of Having Nothing, Possessing Everything finding abundant communities in unexpected places. As a preacher, consultant, storyteller, he speaks all over the country about community development and urban ministry. Let's listen to my conversation with Mike. Hi, Mike. It's great to be with you. Hi, Lisa. Good to see you again. So I want to jump in, starting with your book that you wrote a few years ago, Having Nothing, Possessing Everything. It is just chock full of wisdom and stories, and I think can be so transformative for the church and the way we do ministry. So I I would love to hear you talk about what you hope that people get out of it. Like if they read this book, what do you hope they walk away with? I think there's three things I think about. One is that you know, this has been a learning journey for me, and I hope it's a learning journey for others. The second is, and this is connected perhaps to our conversation today in the whole, is that I hope that what people are able to see through this is what I was able to come to see, which was the people who I thought I was bringing power to actually have power. (laughs) And um, so that, that was the second thing. The third is that when I've gone around and talked with people about the book, the thing that's most surprised me is people have said, could you tell us stories of failure? And I'm Uh like, they're all stories of failure. (laughs) (laughs) They're near the beginning of the book. I talk about, you know, running this summer program that I felt really great about. And it was doing great. 250 young people, nine to five every day. And, you know, patting myself on the back so hard, I broke my, broke my arm. (laughs) But the last nine months I was there, I did nine funerals for young men under 25 years old who were killed in the four block radius around the church. And here I was thinking I was doing all this good work. And so when people ask me that question, I'm always like, well, they're not nine dead bodies (laughs) failure enough. Um, But there's other stories like that. And then I realized, and it's to the point of what I hope people get from it is that For us, it was never that these were failures. I mean, they were terrible, but they were things we learned from and grew from. And for us, a failure is something, or I guess in people's minds when they're asking me that, a failure is something that 
that just ends. And mm-hmm. for us, a failure is just an opportunity to keep on learning. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful and powerful as mm-hmm. you talk about the stories of what it was like in your community. I, I, I would love to hear you share and talk about when you made the pivot, I mean, you talked about second thing that you want them to get away from it is, is not just that we hold the power, but the, the power. Yeah, anyways, will, will you talk a little bit about how that pivot happened in your life? Sure, sure, sure. So um, at the end of 1991, I the last nine months I was at the church in Indianapolis, I was had done these nine funerals over nine months. And it had kicked the heck out of me. You know, mm-hmm. again, here I was thinking I'm doing all this good work. And people kept saying, oh, but if you hadn't been doing this, it would have been even worse. And mm-hmm. my comment to that was two things. First is no. And the second is even if you're right, this isn't good enough. So the bishop sent me to another church up in South Bend, Indiana, a tiny little Methodist church up there. And it had a food pantry. We had 40 people in the congregation and, and, um, people would come to this food pantry and they'd ask, you know, how, we'd ask them these questions because we got government surplus food. So we had a government form. How much is your income? How much are your expenses? And people would say, well, my income $600 a month and my expenses are $1,200 a month. And it was like, oh my gosh, we're a little congregation of 40 people. Yeah. We can't do much with that for one person, much less others. So we would take that information and put it in a file cabinet. Yeah. Well, we came to Pentecost that year, and that that little congregation had lunch every Sunday for whoever wanted to come, and and um, so sitting there after worship, talking around about, and a woman at the table says, "Mike, you said that Peter, reading from the prophet Joel, said that God's spirit flows down on all people, young and old, women and men." And I thought, "How good am I?" This is really impressive. I'm a great preacher. It's a half an hour later, and she remembers what I said, you know? And I'm like, yes, that's right. And she says, so how come you don't treat people like that? And I was like, what What do you mean? And she said, well, when people come to the food pantry, you ask people how poor they are. If you really believe God's spirit flow down on all people, young and old, women and men, how come you aren't asking them that? Good question. Wow. So the very next day, we started asking people 10 pages of questions about what their gifts were. (laughs) And not the spiritual gift surveys that churches do, but like, have you taken care of older folks? Have you taken care of children? Uh, Are they members of your family? Have you had a job somewhere? Have you been helping a neighbor out? Can you fix a toaster? Can you drive a car? Do you play a musical instrument? Do you sing? Have you cooked for more than 10 people? Have you cleaned up after more than 10 Mm -hmm. people? I mean, everything you could think, and we asked three questions at the end. What three things do you do well enough you could teach somebody else how to do it? What three things would you like to learn that you don't already know? And who besides God and me is going with you along the way? Well, the first person who came to us was a little woman about five feet tall, lived half a block from the church named Adele Almagir. And Adele lived with several generations of her family in that house, and they didn't have enough food to feed everybody. And um, so we did this survey with her, and she said she was a good cook. And we said, prove it. 
Mm-hmm. And she said, what do you mean? We'll cook for the custodian, secretary, and pastor lunch on Friday. So she cooked for us, and it was great, and we paid her for it. Leadership of the neighborhood organization was meeting. We said, don't meet somewhere else. Meet here at the church and let Adele cook for you. She cooked for them. And over the next nine months, and they loved it, over the next nine months, she cooked for um, Studebaker Elementary, had a PTA meeting, Southeast Side Neighborhood Health Center, had an open house, Memorial Hospital in South Bend, had a press conference conference in our neighborhood. She provided the food for all of those. People loved it. Then the Chamber of Commerce called. We'd like to have an all-day meeting of our leadership program in your church building. Well, you can do that, we said. Well, since we're going to be there all day, we need to use your kitchen. We said, you can use our kitchen, but we would prefer you use our caterer. <laughs> and they said, okay. And we took, made our only financial investment. We took 20 bucks and bought her a thousand business cards. Said, Great. La Chaparita Catering, Spunky Tex-Mex Food. And she fed 70 of the business and civic leaders in the community. They passed out her business card to everybody there. Through that, she got connected to the Michiana Business Women's Association. And a year and a half later, she opened up Adelita's Fajitas at the corner of 8th and Harrison in Elkhart. Now, if we had asked her when she showed up, tell us how poor you are. Right. We would have all ended up poor for it, and we would have missed a lot of great food. She didn't need training. <laughs> she, didn't, she needed people who saw that she had gifts and power. That was when things really shifted yeah. for me. Absolutely. Um, I get chills when I hear you tell that story. That's amazing. So, okay, so take that story and that moment and then... Share with us how that impacted how your church did ministry. Like not just how you did the food pantry, but how you did ministry on an ongoing basis. So what started happening was we just started paying attention to what people's gifts were rather than needs. In fact, if I used the word needs, people would actually boo me. Church. We started this practice of not because there aren't needs, there are, but all of us have needs. The issue was... (laughs) Around us, people didn't, we hadn't recognized that people had gifts and power. So it changed that. So like somebody in the neighborhood came to me and said, hey, I'd like to start something. You have all this list of people who say they could teach something. Why can't we do something like that? Have a school where people teach what they're good at. So we had classes in basic auto repair, Bible study, music, painting, the history of the Hollywood Western and why black men were left out. Of course, Adele taught Mexican cooking (laughs) and conversational physics. And okay, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. well, and and we just say, look, we won't get the students for it. If you can get three people to show up for it, you can hold it in our building. And we called it the school of the spirit. Mm-hmm. And actually, the the several of the classes went so well that they were regularly subscribed. So after a year or so, we decided to start a thing we called Broadway University because the classes that we had been doing in the School of Spirit, we'd put a coffee can in the room. And if any of the students put money in it, the teacher got to keep it. So, but with the school, but with Broadway University, which is what we called the next iteration of this, people had to pay up front six dollars a class for for seven weeks. 
So we did that, and the local newspaper did a story about it. And and we got a call from somebody who said, hey, she wanted to take the class in conversational psychics. And we said, well, no, it's it's conversational physics. <laughs> and the person said, oh, then I'm not interested at all. And I wondered, you know, I've wondered ever since in what a class with conversational psychics would be like. It would right. be really quiet because everybody would know what everybody else was saying. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. So it, it just began. To, so what began to change was we started doing less, <laughs> hmm. and and um, we started supporting what people who were in and around our community. I would say that next iteration, the School of the Spirit, was the next thing. With this was right that we were providing space to people. But I think what changed next and after that was that we started just supporting what people were doing in their lives, in the neighborhood, in their work, apart from our building. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, in Indianapolis, one of the things we started saying to each other when I went back to Indianapolis several years later was we took to saying, we will support anything our neighbors want to do as long as it's not illegal or obscene and we're a little flexible on the illegal <laughs> because because slavery was once legal right? right so so but it gave it gave people a way to think about this in the church and in the community because the way we always think about mission or stuff was what we are doing what are we providing to people? But to, yeah. but to switch that to begin to say what we're doing is supporting and investing in what people are doing in their lives and communities was how that flipped upside down. So uh, it feels important to me to note that you, you had this kind of revelation and pivot initially in Indianapolis and you went to South Bend where you were really challenged on what that looked like and how you did ministry in the church. And then you went back to Indianapolis, interestingly enough, to the same church. But you you had fundamentally changed the way you did ministry and thought about ministry, so much so that even though the work is contextual in both places, you actually did ministry differently when you went back to Broadway in Indianapolis. Right? Yes. Is that, am I saying sure, that? Sure, 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 sure. You know, like the summer program when I left, right? Mm -hmm. And when I'm back 12 years later, they're running the summer program the same way as when I left. Mm -hmm. And that was fine. But in terms of marking that shift, what happened was, what we changed was, instead of running a summer program at the church for young people and bringing in volunteers and teachers and AmeriCorps volunteers and everybody to be involved, we ended up hiring young people in the neighborhood and paying them to meet their neighbors. So that was, you know, an outward and visible sign of the thing you were talking about. Yes, yes. So instead of saying, we hold the power and all things good that you need, you actually have power and let's empower you or not even empower you because you already have the power, but, but let's deploy you to utilize your gifts in the neighborhood. Or I don't know, you can say that better. <laughs> well, what I would say is what we decided to do was just start acting like we believed people had power. Yeah. Nice. There <laughs> you, know? you go. So we started making investments in the same way that we had made investments inside the church 
right? <laughs> we started making investments outside the church. We would always join ourselves inside the church to if somebody had a gift and an interest and wanted to do something, we would support it. Why would we not do that in the local community? And it, the other thing I want to say, Lisa, is that what I didn't have to change was my theology. <laughs> this was the thing that really hit me was, well, I believe this. Yeah. Why, why have I not been doing this? And then I realized that all our practices that I'd been taught growing up in the church, and I'd been taught in seminary, all our practices were built around scarcity. And yet, you know, the gospel message is about, actually the message of the whole Bible is about abundance. And it's yeah. like, okay, well, I need to start paying attention to that and acting like these things I believe are actually true in practice. How did it impact how you as a leader did ministry, like on a regular basis, it, you know, your leadership team or any, any other mm -hmm. kinds of parts of your work? So it changed everything. <laughs> it changed worship on Sunday morning. It changed the structure that we used in, in meetings. It changed things formally and informally. So informally, some of the things that changed were like, we had this person you know, Diamon Hargis, who's a <laughs> neighbor and a member of the church. And Diamon was just always collecting the gifts of people around the community. Yeah. He would he would walk down and see me every day and he'd say, oh, I just met this guy at the corner of 32nd Park and he plays chess on his porch every day and he's teaching young people about life. Or <sighs> I just ran into the Buddha boys at the corner of 31st and Broadway and one of them's a mechanic and one of them's a singer and one of them's a poet. And so he was just always telling me this stuff. So what I asked him to do was to start accidentally showing up at the beginning of meetings at the church. So he'd come into the <laughs> trustees meeting. Oh, nice. oh, I forgot you all were meeting. I'm sorry. I brought this neighbor along with me. Could you all, you know, his name's Kwanzaa. He runs the Indiana reggae band. He lives about half a block away. Could you all introduce yourself and tell yourself? So that's what I mean about informally. Yeah. You know, yeah. right? I mean, and so by the third month that Diamon is accidentally showing up, <laughs> when, when he shows up at the beginning of the meeting with the neighbor, people start laughing. And this yeah. is great because now when people laugh, it's when people are learning and people are like, oh, I get this. Yes, I see this. And so that was informal. Formally, we, we changed a lot of things. Instead of the governing council being um, a, a place where people gave reports, we would invite two to four people from inside the congregation and outside the congregation to come and share for five minutes each, no more than that, a gift they had, something they did in their life of faith in the world. So it could be a 14-year-old kid from down the street. It could be the principal of the local high school. It could be somebody who worked as a home care assistant, a 35-year-old woman down the street. You know, it could be anybody. And they would come and talk about something either they were doing for work or for th that sense of vocation and calling in their life. And then what we would spend our time talking about at the meeting was, what does it mean to hold these gifts in our hands? What does it mean that we know wow. these people's sense of call and vocation? And how can we be a part of that? And wow. it changed, so it changed the whole conversation. In worship, we began to do things where we first started with um, 
because things were changing, right? And things had been changing for a long time in other ways, right? We'd had a thrift shop that had existed at the the church for 35, 40 years, but the 80 and 90-year-old women who ran it didn't want to run it anymore, and nobody wanted to take it over. So they just stopped doing it. But people, and even though we said in the bulletin every week, it doesn't exist anymore, people kept acting like it was still alive. <laughs> so people kept donating stuff. So we would have rooms piled with junk you know, that people had donated. So we started doing a thing when we started the new church council, the way in which we ran it. We started doing a thing where the last Sunday of every month, right before the last hymn, we would celebrate ministries that had died, ministries that were continuing, and ministries that were beginning. So a ministry that had died, of course, the first one we did was the thrift shop. And we got up, and the the lay leader got up in front of the congregation and said, You know, will all those who've ever volunteered in the thrift shop please come forward? And we gave them all a gift. And then she said to the congregation, will all of you um, who've ever donated to the thrift shop please stand up? And now people are standing. And then we said together as a congregation to one another, well done, good and faithful servants. And people knew it was done, right? They knew it was finished. So, it took us three years to bury everything that was dead. One of the things that sometimes said is that <laughs> yes. I killed things or something. No, no, no. I did not kill things. I buried the dead. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are things that we were, people felt guilty that we didn't do them anymore, but they'd been really good and right. they really served us well. And, and we could say thank you to them. And so yeah. that's what we were doing. Actually, after about three years and we had done all that we could think of with that, when the lay leader said, oh, I have another idea. And so one Sunday, he got up in front of the congregation and said, well, anybody who's ever said we've always done it that way before, please stand. And people stood <laughs> and we said together, well done, good and faithful servants. <laughs> and people laughed and it was great. And, you know, about six months later, one of the pillars of the church said to me, well, Mike, I'm not saying we've always done it that way before, but but it was great. The reason he was thinking of that was because yeah. we had done this together, right? Right. So one of the other people that Diamond had met in his walking around the neighborhood was a woman named um, Maya, who lived three and a half blocks from the church. And Maya had grown up in the neighborhood. She was in her early 30s. She was living in the house her parents had raised her in. And she was working at AT&T at night. And then during the day, she was getting up and tutoring young people. And Diamond's like, you got to talk to her. Now, we ran a tutoring program at the church, and we had run it for decades. And we would get volunteers from other churches, from businesses, you know, all those type of things. But we'd never asked for, you know, volunteers from the neighborhood because, you know, these people are poor. They're struggling. What, you know, so Diamond's like, you got to talk to Maya because she's doing this. And so I call Maya, and she tells me, She's doing this tutoring, and I say, well, what do you cover? And she says, I cover everything from phonics to Sophocles. 
And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, if they don't know how to read, we do phonics. If they do know how to read, we do Sophocles. And then every Friday, I have a barbecue in my backyard, and their parents come over, and they present what they've learned that week. Now, we should not be asking her, hey, come volunteer what we're doing. We should be saying to her, how can we be a part of this amazing, holy, good work you're doing? So we invite her to come to church. And she's lived there over 30 years, never set foot in our church. And one of the ways we know is she sits in the front row. Right. (laughs) So we come to this time of the service when we're celebrating things that have ended, beginning, continuing and beginning. And she says she won't stand up in front of everybody and talk because she's shy, but, but that we can say something about it. So... The lay leader gets up and says, you know, she's, uh, Maya, would you please stand? And she stands, but her back's to the congregation. And he says, I want to describe to you what she's doing, this amazing good work. And afterwards, she'll be happy to talk with people individually, but she's a little shy. And then he does what we always do with this, says, you know, so... Um, will those of you who will support her with your prayers, your presence, your gifts, your, your service, and your witness please stand? Well, now almost everybody, if not everybody's standing, but she doesn't know that because she's in the front row and her back is to the congregation. And then he says, stealing from the marriage liturgy, right? Will all of you do everything in your power to uphold and care for this person in her ministry? If so, you answer, we will. And when this large group of people thunders, we will, she jumps up in the air and twists around. And when she (laughs) lands, she's facing the congregation. And two things that have been invisible are now visible. She now, we had not known there's people doing this amazing, good, holy work all around us. And she had not known there's a congregation full of people who are eager to support and encourage and bless this work that I'm doing. That's, yeah. So structurally, it changed everything. The, the one other thing I would mention it changes, that meant it changed our job descriptions. Uh-huh. So when the staff parish met one year, we, uh, one, one month of several years into this, we had all written, rewritten our job descriptions. How are we going to pay attention to the gifts and the power in the lives of people who are our neighbors? How's the music minister going to do it? How's the custodian going to do it? How's, wow, wow, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, just how everybody. And so that changed the way we did things and looked at things. But we had to change job descriptions because our job descriptions were based on what was missing, not what was present. Right. And probably located the power, the decision-making, the tasks with you, with the staff, as opposed to really distributing that power where it belonged or where it already was. Yeah. Yeah, And again, I would say what we often talked about it as was how do we join the power that God has present in Mm. the lives of our neighbors? I mean, um, at least several years ago, you met Miss Rose, right? Yes. Didn't you go over to her porch? On her porch. Yes. I want to tell you about another visit like that once. Jeremy Ephraimson from the Ephraimson Foundation in downtown Indianapolis had heard that there were gardeners in the neighborhood, and he, like, came to the church to talk to us about how they could do a grant, you know, or something to support the work 
of the gardeners, but he came to talk to me. I mean, talking to me wasn't going to do any good. So Diamond's <laughs> like, I will take you down to see Miss Rose. You don't want to talk to Mike. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. he took it down to talk to Miss Rose. And because of what Miss Rose was doing and growing, and because what he saw then was the power in these neighbors, he gave the money. So that wasn't our distribution of power. It was just our, you know, meet people right yeah 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 Um, you know point to where the power is at work already yes 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 yes. which again is is present in and through throughout the biblical testimony this power is there it's there in that there's that wonderful story in is it second kings or first kings i think second kings in seven where the widow comes to elijah and she's you know she's gonna lose the house and you know, now we know what, what Elijah should have done is written her a check. (laughs) But what Elijah says is, well, what do you have? And she says, well, I have a little oil. And he says, well, then gather vessels from all your neighbors. So she goes around and gets all vessels and he says, start pouring. And she starts pouring and the oil doesn't stop until the last vessel is full. Yeah. I mean, this has been the story from the beginning of the Bible, the end of the Bible, that God's abundance is there powerfully present all the time. And imagine it's the story of the feeding of the 5,000, right? Right, right. It's right here. Well, before we wrap this up, I uh, would be remiss in not asking you where you met resistance or obstacles, because that often happens, I mean, just occasionally, if not in your church or neighbor's church, when we make significant shifts in how people think and act. So, so Lisa, the, you know, I get asked this question a lot, as you might imagine. So I bet. I've, I've been a pastor in churches for 36 years. I'm fairly sure there's nothing you can do in a church that there is a pushback on. Right. <laughs> and so right. the issue is not... Is there pushback or is there challenge in this? There is, of course, but then you meet it out of the, you know, the issue is, is this a change I believe in or is this not? Is this something that's deeply rooted in our faith and in who we are? So, like, here's a practical thing that happened. Uh So, when we changed that the governing council was not going to listen to reports anymore, right? Instead, we're, right. So, the United Methodist women were mad. Well, we don't get a chance to give our report, you know? So, okay, so we sit down with the United Methodist Women, and we talk together about it. Mm -hmm. And we said, look, when the governing council meets, there's like 20 people there, and you give this report 20 people. What if we printed the report and put it in every bulletin on Sunday? Mm -hmm. And they were like, oh, that would be better. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. It wasn't... I mean, the issue about pushback and challenge, wherever it came up, was always just to meet it. I remember when we started paying young people to go meet their neighbors, somebody in the church coming to me and saying, well, why are we paying young people? Why are we paying them to do this? Shouldn't they be volunteering? And I said, well, you have a job, right? (laughs) They said, yes. I said, well, you know, why don't you just volunteer? (laughs) (laughs) She was like, oh, that's a good point. I said, it's one of the ways we have that we value something. And we value what these young people are finding out about the gifts of their neighbors. 
it's making all of us better and stronger as a result of it. And so, I mean, again, once I had this guy who worked at Lilly Pharmaceutical, he said to me, I don't understand what you're talking about. And I said, well, sure you do. <laughs> and he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you're a chemist. And I said, if your boss has you working on this new drug and you're working on it and your boss comes in and says, hey, how's that new drug doing? And you say, great. And then your boss says to you, well, how do you know? And you say, well, I feel like it. <laughs> how long do you have your job? And I said, we've been doing this stuff in the church all the time. We've been handing out food in the food pantry, but we have no idea. Is this helpful? We've been running a tutoring program. For 30 years, we ran that tutoring program and we never looked at it. But when we looked back every year, we ran it. The graduation rate in our neighborhood got worse. It didn't get worse because of what we were doing. We didn't make things worse, but we thought we were doing something to make things better, but we never even tried to figure it out. And the, this Lily Pharmaceutical chemist was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I understand. You're so that. good, Mike. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, mis- you're meeting them where they are, even the, even the dissenters, if you will, to, to listen and to hear what they're, and then to help them understand not not just the program but the underneath the theology the the purpose behind well and again the theology was the theology theology part was the easiest part for them to connect with yeah because it didn't you know we believe all people are beloved children of god we believe all people have gifts right well yes well what does it mean to act like that yeah and You know, it changed for me a lot across the years. I just, it, it made me go deeper and deeper into that. But because of that, it changed the health status of people around us. Babies were born with higher APGAR scores, not because of anything we did, but because of things we stopped doing <laughs> and things we started supporting among our neighbors. Interesting. The, the health department, the state health department, or no, the this was the health department, public health department at the local university came to us and said, we understand you all check into the gifts of people. You know, we, we know that the lowest APGAR scores are with children born to African-American women aged 20 to 30 or 25 to 35, which I didn't know. I would have thought it was younger, right? But no. Do you know why? It's because African-American women are the highest stress demographic in the country. And when your body is stressed, it produces a drug, which is unhealthy, right, for things inside of us, right? So they went around, and we gave them names of artists who lived in our neighborhood. And the artists went and did art classes with women who are 25 to 35 years old in the neighborhood. And they would swipe their mouths at the beginning of the art class and put it in a test tube, and checking the level of this drug that caused, you know, that this has chemical, yeah. this chemical, right. And, um, and they saw stress levels go down. Now, the thing that I disagreed with them about was that they thought the stress levels went down because they were doing art. I thought the stress levels were going down because people were seeing their neighbors, people they knew. They were realizing, oh, we have the agency and the power here. And other people are recognizing that. 
and that that the, it was my feeling that that's what brought the stress levels down. But it meant that the APGAR scores for babies were better there. That blood pressures were better. It meant that people had more money in our community because of the work that Diamond's done, which you know a lot more about. And and but theirs ended up in the last couple of years two million dollars in the hands of people in our neighborhood. Any of the programs we ran for years never did that. Right, right. <laughs> wow. And when the Bible talks about losing leads to finding, that's what happened for us. When we began to trust, this power is here. And we started having other people recognizing it. The State Department of Health did come to the young people during the summer and they investigated them, not at our request, because they'd heard about what they were doing. And they investigated it and then came back to the young people and said, you know, what you're doing is actually making communities healthier. And what we've been doing hasn't been working. We just got $250,000 from the Rockefeller Foundation. We want to give it to you to continue to build on the work you're doing. I mean, we didn't go looking for that. They came right. to them because yeah. it was recognized what they had and what was going on. That's beautiful and powerful, Mike. I mean, mm. that's that's it. That's the gospel being lived out in a way that literally, physically, as well as spiritually, changes people's lives and the way they, and their health and their well-being and community and Oh, yes, 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 yes. It's I, amazing. Yeah. I, I read a book this past year by Willie James Jennings. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And in that book, he, he had this one line. He talked about how at the seminary he was working in that they were cutting the budget. And his next line was, but they were leaving unused gospel lying all around. Oh, Right there. And I was right like, there. that's what that's what I had done so much of. I had not paid attention to this unused gospel lying all around in the hearts yeah. and lives of people. And, yeah. and when we did, we didn't know whenever we would go into it what would come from that. Yeah. But every time we went into it, even the things that didn't work, right? that failed, <laughs> good things came from it. Yeah. And we learned something. There was one other thing we did that showed that we knew people had power and invested that I was thinking of. And that sure. was, Just go. <laughs> we, take, we take learning journeys. Uh -huh. we would, you know, we would go, uh, actually some folks from the Texas Methodist Foundation came with us on one of those. But we always had people who came from our neighborhood, people who wouldn't ever be able to afford otherwise. So we could learn together on these trips of people we would talk to. And it was the mm -hmm. relationships that were built out of those things that ended up often making changes that were building on work we were doing in the community, that our neighbors were doing in the community. So you would go to another community and do the same kind of question asking, curiosity seeking. Is that what you're talking about? That's right. And we, yeah. we it wasn't to churches. It was overwhelmingly to economists, to physicians, to artists to poets, because nice. we wanted them people who are known for helping people understand the world more deeply, right? Yeah. And they would often say, well, why were people from a church coming to talk to 
<laughs> but, but, but yeah, it was, but because they didn't think we really wanted to know, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I think that's, but I think those trips together with people, people, you know, being together on these trips and getting to know each other just on that. And again, it was a way that showed, we believe you have power. You might yeah. not be able to afford to go on this trip, but you're going because we believe and know you have power. <laughs> and yeah. and that's important to us here. I love that. I love that it wasn't just you or your staff, but you brought folks from the neighborhood and said, we're going and learning together and bringing that back and impacting your community. Mike, this has been a real gift. I mean, really a gift. You are amazing. And I love the ways that you do not leave the gospel <laughs> on the editing floor or whatever that you are with all that you are embracing the fullness of the gospel wherever well, you. Well, may I say serve. two things about that? One is it's a lot more fun. <laughs> nice. It is. Yeah. It's uh, the other stuff was often, you know, we, we did it out of glad and generous hearts, but it was often miserable. And actually paying attention to the joy and gifts in people's lives, lives, it was, it was better for everybody. It was better for me. It made, it's made my life better and richer. It's made me a better human being, I hope. It's made me a better Christian, I hope. Yeah, it's just, it is more fun. That's the best right there. It's a great note to end on. Thank you, Mike. Yep, thanks. (laughs) Igniting Imagination is a production of the Leadership Ministry Team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation with excellent editing support from TruthWork Media. Check out our show notes and website for more information about all our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White, and from all of us at Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.